1: More and more of our city's churches are acknowledging and accepting LGBTQ congregates, According to the website GayChurches.org, the number of LGBTQ-affirming congregations in Nashville has grown by more than 50% over the last decade or so. This follows a national trend towards acceptance. Old beliefs about who is allowed to worship and lead are changing, and as a result, so is the idea of what church can be. So what does this mean? for LGBTQ believers who have felt excluded or even harmed by religion in the past. That's coming up later this hour. But first, it's time for At Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I am encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at ThisIsNashville and on Instagram at ThisIsNashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now, as always, with a look back at the past week, is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna.
2: Hey, Khalil. How's it going? It's always good to be in the
1: studio. Yes, it is. That's why I love Thursdays. Okay, so let's get right to it. During yesterday's episode about WeGo, we received a number of comments from listeners about the changes they'd like to see in our local bus system, so many that we couldn't fit them all into the show.
2: Yeah, and I hope someone from WeGo is listening and taking notes right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. So, we got several comments from listeners asking for extended bus service in the evenings, especially. Also, a few people pointed out that other cities around the world are designed around buses and trains. But here they point out it feels like the opposite. So our listener, Tony, wrote on Twitter that he'd like to see WeGo's train service run seven days a week. Mm -hmm. Someone who goes by Isaurus um, wrote in to say, quote, I need Sunday service on Crosstown buses to Wedgwood, Houston and 100 Oaks. And Phil also tweeted at us to say, I would love for MTA to make one more evening run after 6 p.m. from Murfreesboro slash MTSU to Nashville. I'd be on it. I am way over my auto commute. There are so many reckless and inconsiderate drivers on I-24. And you know what, Phil? I 100% agree with you because I'm very much over my commute.
1: I feel you. I feel you. We need more <laughs> a little bit more Nashville Nice on these roads out here.
2: And you know what? We had a really great episode about Nashville Nice last week.
1: That's right. In case you missed it, it's a must listen. It was all about the quirks and mannerisms that make Nashville spin on Southern hospitality. Uniquely Nashville.
2: So speaking about Nashville nice, mm-hmm. Sasha Rose, 36, shared on our Instagram account at this is Nashville underscore WPLN, quote, the people are what make the city great. I like the friendliness and the openness to speak to each other in public. It makes a big city feel small. I don't really believe in being indirect. There is nothing wrong with saying no as long as you do it in a kind way.
1: There you go. I got to practice my kind nose out here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Anna, what else we got?
2: So we had a show about paganism on Tuesday. I totally didn't know until we started booking the show that some consider Nashville the, the buckle of the pagan belt. Uh,
1: me either. I didn't know that either.
2: Yeah, that was the first time I ever heard it. But we got some feedback from our listener, Phil, whom I mentioned earlier, on Twitter. He said, quote, the show seemed to me to imply that self-avowed Wiccans and pagans are the predominant alternatives to mainstream Christianity. In fact, there are more humanists, naturalists, and secularists, excuse me, of other sorts who do not dabble in magic or hexes or other supernatural-sounding sorts of talk. I do really want to clarify something here, Mm -hmm. um, that Wiccans and pagans are only a fraction of non-Christians in Tennessee. According to Pew, 1% of ten of... Tennesseans identify as pagans. Meanwhile, 14% of Tennesseans are nuns, and that is N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Okay. <laughs> Meaning these uh, this 14% doesn't, you know, follow any faith. But I will add that these numbers are from 2014. Uh, but recently other studies from Pew have actually shown that Americans who identify as nuns on the rise.
1: Yeah, you know, either way, I think it's good fodder for doing another show on this in the near future. There was so much complexity complexity really to unpack in this. Thank you for the feedback, Phil. I appreciate it. All right. So do we have any other interesting comments?
2: Well, during Monday's show about the local film s- scene, I asked on Twitter, could Nashville become the Hollywood of the South? Oh, wow. And I think we got the best answer from our guest and local film producer, Max Butler, who wrote that the answer to this question is No. But that's all right. We're good. Because there's plenty of stories to tell.
1: There are a lot of stories. I'm sure Atlanta would fight hard for that title. I'd like to see that battle, though. (laughs) (laughs) After that episode, a listener pointed out that there was one film festival we forgot to mention. But we can make up for that. Right, Anna?
2: Absolutely. So Loretta Saff reached out to us to let us know about the Nashville Jewish Film Festival, which begins next Wednesday on October 12th. Mm-hmm. Loretta is actually one of the f- festival's co-directors. And you know what? This festival's going on for a long time. Um, it has been going on for 22 years. Wow. So the Nashville Jewish Film Festival is hosting some of its screenings at the Belcourt, Um, And the AMC location in Bellevue. So if you're a movie buff or you're interested in learning about Jewish culture, you know what? You really might want to check this out.
1: That's right. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you soon. Of course.
2: And our listeners know where to find me online.
1: Don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram. Let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It's super easy and quick and really helps us produce the shows with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll meet some local church leaders who are finding ways to welcome and center our LGBTQ community. Do you attend an LGBTQ affirming church? Are you looking for one? Tweet us at thisisnashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. (music) Welcoming spaces are vital to life of any community. That's especially true for our LGBTQ community, which historically hasn't always been centered or welcomed. Now, there's one spot in town, that they've been welcoming this community for decades. In fact, it's celebrating 20 years this weekend, the Lipstick Lounge in East Nashville. Here's how drag queen Kennedy Ann Scott described the bar and karaoke joint.
0: We are a bar for
3: humans. We love everybody, we take anybody in. This is church for
1: some people. But for some people, church is church. And that's why we're here to talk about today. That's what we're here to talk about today. Churches provide not only a spiritual connection, but community connection. But for many people of faith, those connections have been closed off simply because of their sexuality and gender identity. But the church community in town is changing. It's trending towards acceptance and affirmation of LGBTQ members. And more on that It's trending towards centering LGBTQ experiences in ministry and leadership. My next guest understands what that's all about. Stephen Ader is a worship leader at Glendale United Methodist Church. Stephen, thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Glad to be here. So, you know, let's go back to the Glendale United Methodist Church in 2017. I understand that it was in a pretty bad state. What was happening there at the time?
4: Yeah, I grew up at Glendale, and my grandparents made up the bulk of that congregation uh, as I grew up as a child. And uh, we uh, we were just doing the church like we always had done it. Um, it was a it was a welcoming, loving place. I had all the grandmothers in the world uh, mm-hmm. growing up, uh, but uh, we we weren't doing something along the way to reach out to new generations and to open the door wide. And in 2017, we got down to probably around 25 in worship attendance. And I looked around and said, this is not sustainable um, or vital or going to last very much longer. So we made some intentional steps uh, to to change, make changes, um, mostly pretty small changes, but we all hit it all at once. Um, But I think the most important change that we made uh, was to push, uh, be intentional in our uh, inclusion and uh, racial justice efforts uh, to to really reach out and make sure that our doors were Actually, widely available to all. What were those discussions
1: like as you all were becoming more intentional about inclusion to different
4: communities? Yeah, luckily at that point, um, I would say the old guard had uh, moved on, uh, so it was kind of a blank canvas. Uh, so uh, we had we had a few new people coming, so there was some of that new energy that was already happening around uh, 2017. So um, our pastor, uh, she is amazing, uh, and she uh, she she let the door. Again, be open internally for us to really move forward and do whatever we needed to do to uh, to reach out. Um, You know, it was so it it happened naturally; like Mm -hmm. everything just fell uh, together. Uh, I couldn't ask for an easier easier thing. We um, we really started to push inclusion, racial justice, whatnot. Um, But we, uh, you know, churches have to vote on these things to be a reconciling congregation. uh, To to you know. Say they're going to be inclusive. At least in the United Methodist Church, we have to do that. Um, And it was a unanimous vote uh, when we got to it. So, so most churches have to have long, drawn-out discussions, conversations, disagreements, whatnot. Uh, We voted, and it was unanimous. So that just, uh, you know, we were at the place where that was the right time. Uh, We did that in 2019. So it was a couple years, but. From that that day in 2017, uh, we started seeing growth, and the people that came were finding us because we were uh, a place where they could uh, heal and and reconnect with the church and reconnect with a relationship with God uh, that they had been excluded from in other churches.
1: Now I understand the two two questions really quick. You yeah. said that you guys went down to 25 membership. What are you where are you at now?
4: Uh, so we've added 80 members in the last few years. Okay, um, and I would say that we have probably about 150 active people. Um, and uh, many who have not officially joined, of course, uh, joining the church doesn't happen as regularly as it used to. Um, but uh, there's only probably about uh, seven or eight of us that have been around longer than five years. Okay. So it's a whole new group of people. Um, and it, it's just been a, it's been a transformation um, where people have found hope and healing in the church again.
1: Now, I understand there's a
4: saying you picked up that was a big part of this pivot. Yeah, so um, on that Sunday, so that Sunday in 2017, it was an I think it was August 17th, 2017, uh, when we made all the changes. Uh, we added a welcome message that me and my partner at the time had uh, had um, heard at Capitol Hill United Methodist Church uh, in Washington D.C. when we went to a kickball tournament, and uh, and we brought it back uh, because we thought it was so important and uh, just the words, the intentional words, sharing as an act of worship, not mm. just writing it on your website, not just, you know, printing it in your bulletin, but actually saying it. Uh, it's, uh, we, we say it in every worship service, and it's no matter uh, who you are, where you have come from, or where you are going, no matter what you have or what you don't have, uh, no matter what you believe or what you may be doubting, and no matter the color of your skin, who you love, or how you identify, you are welcomed into this community of faith by a God who loves all of who you are and knows you by name. Hmm. And we've had people come back because we share those words in worship. And I think our churches don't, even our inclusive churches, uh, don't take um, words that might seem simple on face value, but they mean so much to people who have never heard that in their life be spoken out aloud as an act of worship in a service.
1: Now, now we've been using this term LGBTQ affirming, but you recently, you just used the term reconciling congregation. Yeah. Tell me, what does it mean to be a reconciling congregation?
4: Yeah, so uh, each denomination has their own kind of term of being intentionally inclusive. Uh, in the United Methodist Church, that would be reconciling. Um, so for a church to to vote to become a reconciling congregation means that you are making an intentional stand, um, an act uh, to uh, profess and proudly profess and, and loudly uh, share that you um, are not just a welcoming church like most churches like to say they are. But you are um, actually going to welcome into the full life of the church anyone, no matter who they love or how they identify.
1: All right. So I'd like to introduce my next guest. She went a step beyond inclusion with her church. She actually created a new church. Reverend Don Bennett is a founding pa- is the founding pastor at the table. Pastor Don, thank you for being here.
5: Thank you so much. It's an honor.
1: So tell me, what makes your church so different?
5: So uh, I am an or, I'm ordained into the ELCA, which is the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and uh, what what centers the table is that uh, LGBTQ people are the core. Um, many churches, a lot of churches, say we are welcoming and affirming. We're open and affirming, and that means that LGBTQ plus people are invited into our sanctuary, into our pews, into our programming. We say at the table, we too are welcoming and affirming. We love all the straight folks to come. Hmm. It's a very, it's it's a complete uh, paradigm shift. The table centers the lived experiences of LGBTQ plus people, so everything we do is from that lens forward.
1: Yeah. Tell me how did the how did it come to be? How was the table built, so to speak?
5: Uh, I was called by Bishop Kevin Strickland in the Southeastern Synod, uh, who and. The a synod is the ELCA's way of talking about regions, right? That means region for us. And so uh, the Southeastern Synod is Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. And so Bishop Strickland many, about a decade ago, was actually a pastor here in Nashville. And so he understands um, the desperate cry of of the queer community at the intersections of faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, Religion is cultural here in the Deep South. And so uh, my call into ministry was to specifically answer that desperate cry of people to help them journey back to a place of whole person wellness so that their faith could be a vibrant part of their lived experience.
1: Now the timing of the opening was challenging, is that right? It absolutely was. (laughs) What were some of the obstacles you all were facing?
5: So we launched uh, January of 2020, mm. and we initially launched uh, in a dinner church model. That was the intention. The liturgy would be dinner, cooking, uh, eating, and uh, that is fellowship and liturgy together. But then COVID came <laughs> less yeah. than 60 days, and so that made dinner impossible. Um, and so I, like every other pastor, uh, had to pivot to a virtual experience, and uh, prior to that pivot, we had just enough people involved to let me know when they would want to meet, what day of the week, and what time of the day, and that, so the focus would have been between 5 and 7 p.m. on Sunday evenings, Mm -hmm. and so when I made the pivot, I just started preaching from my home, (laughs) um, which became my pulpit, like every other pastor in the United States, right, or in the world, really. Um, and so I became preaching at 7 p.m. on Sundays and it stuck. And we're now a couple years in and we've got, you know, 1500 people a week that tune in. So I can't go back from there.
1: OK. <laughs> yeah. OK. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Lake We're talking this hour about the LGBTQ affirming churches in our town with Pastor Don Bennett and worship leader Stephen Ader. Now, Pastor Don, I understand you identify as bisexual. Now, I'm curious, as you discovered you wanted to be a minister, did you feel like that path was open to you?
5: Uh, I was born into a practicing Catholic family, Mm -hmm. and I have three gay siblings. And so um, not only being a bisexual person, but also being a woman, would not have uh, availed me the opportunity to serve in leadership. Uh, and then in the late 80s, I transitioned to the Lutheran Church. Uh, and, and in 2009, the church made a big a big pivot where they began ordaining openly LGBTQ people. And so since 2009, I have always had the opportunity to serve in leadership. So I think at that point, I always knew I was called to ministry. I was raising a family at that time. Um, and my father, who gave me some wise words, told me not to overlook the fact that raising a family is ministry in mm-hmm. and of itself. And so uh, now here I am many years later, and I'm single. My kids are grown and... Um, so a couple years ago, the path opened up opened up again for ordained ministry.
1: Now you were telling us about your church, the table, and its origins. What's worship like right now at the table?
5: So uh, there is a liturgy. It is somewhat different than what a traditional sanctuary would offer. Um, a lot of the liturgical elements that have meaning, like I don't often wear my clerics, because a lot of people don't understand what they mean. And when I'm dressed like a priest, there's a, that can be very triggering for people in the queer community, because many of us have been harmed by people who are dressed like priests. And so uh, I usually wear street clothes. I do wear a stole. That is a liturgical vestment. Um, but worship does include musical elements. We do read scripture from um, Uh, biblical teaching and other things. Uh, I do preach. I'm what we call a lectionary preacher, and I do that very deliberately Mm. so that um, uh, traditional churches preach a lectionary, which is a set of readings, and everybody in, uh, in the country follows this pattern of readings. And so I deliberately preach the lectionary reading so that LGBTQ people get a life-giving message based upon the same piece of scripture that everybody else in the country has heard. And it just becomes very much a tool and very much a way. Um, Liturgy at the Table is uh, rooted in what we call the three R's, which is uh, reframing, reforming, and reclaiming. We reframe. Scripture So that we can find ourselves located in the narrative of the biblical teachings. And then we reform new healthy patterns about how that could be a life-giving teaching for our lives and our lived experiences as LGBTQ plus people. And then finally, we go to task of deliberately reclaiming our faith and we publicly profess that we are loved by God always loved by God.
1: I understand what you're saying. It's kind of more so than you embracing the faith. It's having the faith embrace you.
5: Yeah. It becomes a very reciprocal, deliberately reciprocal relationship.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, Stephen, you mentioned growing up in the church. Did you ever consider leaving before it became so intentional about inclusion?
4: I didn't. I was lucky that I grew up at Glendale um, and not in many of other churches um, that that preach. I went to another local church here in middle school. I won't, I won't name drop. Um, but uh, that was the most homophobic sermon I'd ever heard. And it was on a Wednesday night in a larger church. Um, and uh, it was not United Methodist. Uh, I'll put that one there. Um, but um You know, I'd never heard those words from the pulpit at Glendale ever. Um, And looking back, although, you know, the older generation might have leaned a tad bit more conservative back then, it was always loving um, and always welcoming. Um, I think we just needed to up it, uh, up a notch or a lot of notches uh, to to make sure that no matter where you've come from, that you do feel like you're welcome and affirmed and loved by God and by each other just as you are. Had it.
1: What was your reaction when you were in middle school on that Wednesday night and you heard that extremely homophobic sermon?
4: It was jaw dropping. I still pass by that church uh, sometimes, and when I'm over on that side of town, and I just, you know, it's it's still it's still triggering, mm-hmm. um, you know. And I, I think that, you know, that's a very minor issue compared to you know what most of our LGBTQIA plus community have faced in the church, where they've been excluded, pushed out physically shoved out. I mean, there's so many, uh, the stories that we've heard from people that have come to find Glendale to be their church home have been awful. Like it just, it it is so sad. The church is its own uh, defeat. Um, and, And we wonder why people in droves of any gender identity, any sexuality, straight, gay, any, that, that, run away from the church because of so many reasons, and we wonder why.
1: So when these people run away from this no. church, yeah. but yet they come to you all, yeah. you know, what have they said to you about being accepted, about being embraced?
4: Yeah. I think that the welcome message that uh, that I shared earlier that we share in every worship service, I think those words um, have been uh, so important in uh, the, the new life that we've seen because we've had people, even a, a teen uh, that had grew up in another more conservative denomination, uh, their family started coming and they now uh, identify as non-binary. They shared that coming to Glendale as a teenager was the first time that they felt that they were actually loved by God for who they were. Mm. Um, Those words, and that's just one story of many that we've heard, but it's, it's people who have been kicked out, excluded. In, for various reasons that have, that I think it's authenticity. I think our churches, they either force inclusion or they force being something that they're not really, or they or they think that that's how they're going to grow or get new people in the door. Um, I think that one of our strengths is, I think because it happened also naturally, that it's it's just the authentic presence of love amongst the people. Um, and it we don't, ha- we don't do church like we've always done it. There's none of that like holding us back. And if we need to maneuver, switch, move, change, um, that's available to us at Glendale. Um, and I-, I-, I share, I do the announcements every Sunday at the end of the service. And um, from time to time, I share that Glendale is what it is today because of each person that is part of the community right now. We do missions because of what people are passionate about. We do worship because of how people are passionate. The music, the songs, uh, you know, the sermons. Our pastor's sermons. Like she reaches to talk about something relevant. She's shortened to the point which I love, but she gets to you know she's hitting the she's hitting it, and you might be uncomfortable. Uh, with some of the, some of the sermons, uh, if you know your theology might be a little bit different or your political leanings might be somewhere, um, but you know I think that she she is relevant in in creating a space that provides safety to all people that walk through the door.
1: Now, now Pastor Don, you mentioned people experiencing harm from their church leaders mm-hmm. in the past. What do your members have to say to you about finding the table?
5: Mm-hmm. Um, Most of the time I am met with uh, tears and a little bit of disbelief and a whole lot of trepidation. Um, There is so much harm. I I have had people tell me their stories of how they physically have been thrown out of churches, like hands on your body and removed from a building. Um, I can't fathom that. Uh, Even being raised in uh, Catholic tradition— Uh, I don't know where I'd be if I didn't have those early teachings, you know, and I wasn't out then. I was just a child. But at the same time, a lot of folks that come to the table come because they have seen us online. They have heard some interview that I've done, and they just they come because they want to see if I'm real, that there's actually a pastor who's openly bisexual and ordained and gives communion and preaches the Bible and says God is happy with you just as you are. God loves you in all of your fullness. Um, So there's a lot of disbelief and and it can be a very slow, tender role. Uh, One of the things I appreciate most about Glendale is that they have managed to strike the balance between tradition and innovation and future thinking, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so there are churches that can tote that balance of the line. The table... Uh, because it's intentionally queer centric, um, our beginnings tend to be a little bit more humble because the population that we're dealing with is not used to being affirmed. They're not used to being uh, affir- you know accepted. And so it takes a it takes a while for them to lean into this and build comfort and safety and flex those muscles instead of, The reverse of waiting for the other shoe to drop, Mm. consistently waiting for that shoe to drop, you're living in fear. And so it takes a minute to make that turn of, you know, leaning into it just could be different this time.
1: Now, you know, we're talking about this shift in churches with The Table and Glendale. What do you all think is behind this shift in church culture and our churches right now? Pastor Don?
5: Oh, I get this question a lot. And the best that I can tell, um, by and large, as as Americans and as citizens, as humans, other humans, we are becoming less tolerant of racism, bigotry, homophobia, um, and, and uh, just things that tear apart families. And I think that when folks realize that the church is really a hospital— It's not a place where you are all cleaned up and ready to go. A church is filled with broken people who want to be loved, who want to be cared for, who want to be accepted as they are. And I think that churches like The Table, like Glendale, like other affirming churches, welcoming churches, um, they have realized that people need to be cared for as they are. They don't need to be changed. And so it's the church's role to be the shapeshifter. It's the church's role. We've we have the church big C. The church is responsible for a great amount of harm, and it's up to the church to make the necessary changes to repair that breach.
1: Now, Stephen, same question to you. What do you think is behind it, and also, why is it important that church and church cultures in our town are changing in this way?
4: I think the 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 woman from Texas uh, that has uh, lashed out about Hocus Pocus two is a great example of the church being irrelevant. And um, I think as as society evolves and progresses in the right way um, and opens its mind uh, generation by generation, um, I think that teachings of you're excluded or this is evil if you watch this or or whatever. Um, I just I just. I saw that story yesterday and thought it was just judgmental of you can't watch this because evil's going to come to your children so like those sort of teachings that, you know, might've been mainstream back when, um, I think that people are, are revolting against that or, are, are running away from that. And, you know, as United Methodists, if we believe that God's grace is available to all people, no matter what, then that doesn't mean excluding anybody for any reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and that, in, that, you know, obviously includes God's love. Um, so, um, you know, it's great to see more and more churches get on board um, with uh, being affirming and inclusive um, and, and just opening those doors. Um, it's a slow process for so many of our churches, though. Um, I'm glad that for us, it was easy for the table. It was natural. And it was that was how it was formed. And uh, I love Bishop Strickland. And I'm so glad that he uh, he uh, he he launched it and, and called you for that, uh, Pastor Don. Um, you know, I. Uh, it's, it's more important, I, I think. History will tell, um, you know, that as, as, as we continue to see more and more churches kind of get on board and really open the doors uh, wider to all people, uh, we'll see which churches uh, continue continue to grow, continue to thrive, um, because I am, I am hopeful and prayerful that it is the churches that include all people, no matter what. And the ones that exclude um, have a lesson to hopefully be learning. Pastor Don, what does it mean? the
1: religious culture in Nashville?
5: I think that uh, the culture is changing. People have been under this uh, false idea that the church is dying. The church is not dying. The church, is, it will never die. Every 500 years, there's a there's a, a shift in a schism that causes things to break apart. And uh, in order for things to come to life, other things have to die. And I think in this part of the country, what is dying off is this idea that white supremacy and Christian nationalism is okay. It is absolutely not. Uh, I believe that ideas like racism and homophobia that have been perpetuated by public officials and by conservative doctrine is okay. It is not okay. And um, I believe that the narrative, people are beginning to stand up, and the church is changing for the better. Uh, It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be painless. But by God's great grace, we'll all get there.
1: That is Reverend Dawn Bennett, pastor at the table. She was joined by Stephen Ader Adder, of the Glendale United Methodist Church. Stephen, Pastor Dawn, thanks you both for being here. Really appreciate this conversation.
5: Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you.
1: We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear some firsthand accounts of being an LGBTQ person of faith in our city. Are you a part of a queer affirming church? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today we've been talking about churches in our town that are evolving to welcome and empower LGBTQ members. Now I'd like to bring in a few members of those faith communities to talk about their experience both inside and outside of the church. Eric Patton is an ordained minister who specializes in weddings for LGBTQ couples, and Kashif Andrew Graham is outreach librarian of religion and theology at Vanderbilt Divinity Library. Eric Kashif, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Really happy to have you both here. So, Eric, let's start with you. I understand that you grew up in the church. Tell me what it was like for you.
3: Oh, goodness. So, I... Was very involved in my church growing up. So I grew up in rural Tennessee in Fentress County and went to this little country church. Uh, they were sweet, but it was watching Fox News Sunday whenever you went and heard a sermon, usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was, it was a lot more cultural to go to church. And uh, yeah, it was not great for a young queer person uh, hearing. Uh, I remember one of the deacons drove me to church one Sunday and said something along the lines of, uh, it's a choice and they're all going to hell. Whoa, okay. And and I was probably about, I don't know, 13 or 14 when that was said to me, so it was just ingrained to me. And at that point, um, I was very much in the closet. I knew very young that I was some brand of different, I didn't really have words to put into it because it just wasn't around, you know, we're in a small town. So it was, it was kind of traumatic and it realized I was going to have to hide for a while or pray to fix it. And that's exactly what I did. I would lay in my bed and pray the Lord, let this cup pass from me prayer. Um, and I know that, uh, that was, that was the words I had at the time. Cause I didn't, I, I didn't want to, disappoint anybody I wanted to I wanted to make a difference and I wanted to have this life where I could be in the church because I was very like I believe in Jesus. I believe that uh, we have a Savior who loves us and I think it's uh, it was really hard for me to reconcile uh, that until, I went to Washington D.C. Um, I got the opportunity to page on the House floor. I'm also very into politics. I'm super fun to have at a, uh, a dinner at party. A party, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> um, no, I went to that same church. Stephen was just talking about the uh, the Capitol Hill United Methodist. Uh, I was there for one Sunday. They preached nothing like I'd ever heard before. They had a note in their bulletin, uh, that they welcomed members of their community, all members of their community, no matter their sexual orientation or gender identity and blew my mind Hmm. because, you know, I go, I I lived in that town and although there were probably a hundred churches serving 16,000 people in that County, uh, I had never ever heard a
1: message that, queer people can be Christian. It blew my mind. So when you hear that message for the first time and you have this, sorry for the pun, revelation. Sure. You know, what What was your feelings? How, how did that kind of either restore or bring fire back to your faith?
3: Um, it allowed me to know that I'm not alone. Hmm. And I think that is what we're all searching for in this life is to know that we're not the only ones going through this. And, you know, I went back and talked to my youth pastor and uh, I didn't say anything that day. I didn't like I pretended like it didn't affect me. And I was just like, what is this? Okay." And uh, I went back home talked to my youth pastor and I was like, you know, what is this? They're a queer Christian, like they're gay Christians. That's a thing. Hmm. And he said, well, Eric, some people believe that. And that's all the permission I needed. I started researching and I looked more into the Reconciling Ministries Network and it saved my life. All right. Now, Kashif, tell me, what was
0: your religious upbringing like? So I grew up uh, Caribbean Pentecostal Church of God, Um, In fact, I was so Church of God that when I was going to seminary in Cleveland, Tennessee, and my parents came down uh, to visit with me, my mother was standing outside of the Church of God publishing house and almost kissed the ground because she had been seeing uh, books and hymns and things like that stamped with the Church of God Pathway Press uh, from the time that she was growing up in Jamaica. So the Church of God has been you know sort of runs in my blood if you will and that was the tradition that i grew up in
1: now you you had an idea of the path you wanted to take in life where you wanted to go to bible college and i can imagine what you just said your family supported that decision
0: fully fully um and in fact there was definitely uh, an encouragement for my family to become a children's pastor and i had to walk through my own journey uh, of realizing that I wanted to go to seminary because I had wanted to be a good father mm. and I was convinced that if I went to seminary and unpacked the scriptures uh you know close reading verse by verse and in order so to speak that I would uh, eventually get the tools to become straight and um, to be masculine if you will um and once I when I was in seminary it was where I had my uh Deconstruction period. What was that process like? It was difficult. I mean, I think within the first semester When uh, I remember one of my Old Testament professors talking about the different the variant manuscripts um, Of the Old Testament books and I thought wait a minute So y'all don't know either. I thought I was gonna go to seminary and get all of the answers and I think within that first semester uh, Things started to fall apart and it wasn't until I was in the middle of my journey and I was taking a class called uh, Human Growth and Transformation, and uh, the readings that we were doing, um, Birth of the Living God, Anna Maria Rizzuto, uh, and some of these other texts, really encouraged me to look at uh, my image and ideas about God um, and of course, I was then I was also, while I was in seminary, I was working in libraries and I had access to thousands of titles. And so, uh, like Eric, I started reading, researching um, uh, Nick White's How to Survive a Summer, Boy Erased uh, by Garrett Conley, uh, God and the Gay Christian, uh, Torn. Uh, there's so many other texts. Uh, and I started to read James Baldwin, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain, all of those books. Uh, books attended me, really, mm-hmm. on my
1: uh, coming out and deconstruction journey. Now, my next guest has taken a unique path to the ministry. Lori Stevens is an intern minister at First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. Lori, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Khalil. So, you know, you grew up in the church like Eric and Kashif, but I understand you decided to stop going at a young age. Tell me, why did you make that choice?
6: Oh, yeah. Really young, I was so over wearing the dresses and the tights and the girly clothes. Like, going to church was very gendered and really young. I didn't like that.
1: So how did your parents react when you told them, you're not doing this anymore?
6: Luckily, they weren't very devout either, and they were kind of okay with me backing away. And then when I became a teenager and the Internet was starting to become more of a thing, I started having these conversations online about... um doubt and about how the church had really hurt a lot of people. And I realized I'm an atheist.
1: Okay. So you're an atheist, but you found a church here in Nashville, the first Unitarian Universalist church of Nashville. How did you come to find that church?
6: I had had this wild spiritual experience when I was 25, completely out of nowhere. Cause I'm an atheist. I wasn't looking for that kind of a thing, mm-hmm. but one night I just, just completely sober and out of nowhere, realized that I, all the particles of my being, that I was one with everything else. And because I'm an atheist, I, I, I needed some community. I needed some people to talk about that with. And I wandered into this church because it's more than a church. It's an interfaith congregation where I could ask questions about Buddhism and paganism and and being an atheist, um, being Christian, I being Jewish, I could ask questions and try to find the right answer for me.
1: Now, you know, how did attending a welcoming congregation? How did that influence your journey from this experience that you had?
0: Well,
6: the thing about Unitarian Universalist congregations is they're more than welcoming; they're deeply queer. Um, UU churches have had openly gay ministers since 1980. But this blew my mind because I didn't know that. And I thought all churches were gonna hurt me. We're gonna be, uh, I'm bisexual. They were gonna judge me, um, kick me out, that kind of thing. But after the Pulse nightclub shooting happened back in 2016, I saw the minister at the UU congregation in Nashville at at the vigil and I was so grateful. I was like, Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I I had no idea that religious professionals would come to such a thing. Although I'm sure uh, some of your guests, Dawn, for example, I bet that they were there too. Uh, but for me, I had no idea. And I was so grateful. And for, for my minister, she was like, of course, I'm here. Of course I'm here. It was completely normal for her. And that changed my understanding of what religion could be.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil LaColona. We're talking this hour about LGBTQ affirming churches and what it's like to be a queer believer in Nashville with Eric Patton, Kashif Graham, and Lori Stevens. Now, you know, you're talking about your personal journeys as faith and and faith as queer believers. And, you know, I got to ask this question, Eric, you know, you have a church home, but you also perform marriages for LGBTQ couples. What does that mean to you? To be able to, to do to do that work.
3: Sure. So I go to Belmont United Methodist. It's over in Hillsborough Village. Uh shout out to Pastor Paul um, and everyone listening. Um, I just but the Methodist Church doesn't currently ordain LGBTQ people. And while that's a problem, we're working on it at Belmont. Uh we are very fiercely supportive of the LGBTQ community and are working within the, uh, within the denomination to change things along with Glendale um, and several other reconciling ministries here in Nashville. Um, I wasn't interested in getting ordained in the Methodist church because there are a lot of rules. And Mm. I think a lot of times we worry about so many things like rules and it gets in the way of loving our neighbor. And I was so adamant about, you know, when they passed the law in, I think it was 2019 that said you had to be ordained in person where they got rid of the online ordinations in Tennessee, I went as a protest to go get my ordination in person and I posted it on Facebook and never intended to use it and got three requests that day and mm. I'm now... Right around 200
1: weddings since 2019. Now, what about now? I mean, the fallout with the Supreme Court's Dobb decision has opened the door to eliminate. People are worried that it opens the door to eliminate marriage equality laws. Are you seeing more people getting married? Are you getting more requests after that?
3: So I, I'll marry anyone as long as you love each other. I think that's what's important. Um, I'm actually headed to one after this. Okay. But <laughs> I've got to go all the way to Cumberland Furnace. Uh, so I'll be listening to NPR my way there. But um, no, I. I, back in May when the decision was leaked, I definitely got an increase in requests and I had some folks who had booked me for later in the year um, go ahead and do the paperwork now. Um, so, when we started seeing the leak, and then when it finally came down, that okay, this is happening uh, with the Dobbs decision, uh, I, I did see a bump. It's starting to decrease a little more now. I think with what we're hearing from Tammy Baldwin in the Senate that uh, that the Respect for Marriage Act will pass after the election uh, to give some cover to some scared senators. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to pass it then. Um, but at the same time, it was it was a busy summer. It, right. it definitely was. I had, you know, normally I have one or two a month and I was seeing three and four, five and six. Yeah. I, I think I did six in June and eight in July.
1: All right. So we'll, we'll see how the politics plays out now. Kashif, tell me, what's your relationship to the church like now?
0: So I kind of call myself an all paths to love or to the universe kind of uh, person, I don't attend church anymore, and uh, to be quite frank, I'm not sure that I necessarily believe in a God, um, but I do believe in goodness, with a capital G, and creativity, with a capital C. And I'm more concerned with how we treat each other now, you know, uh, than perhaps an afterlife. And this is this is not novel, you know, there's something called uh, Black Power Theology, which says, uh, Let's not worry about the eschaton, so to speak. Let's not worry about you know the second coming of Christ and uh, the afterlife. Let's worry about the right now. Give me, give me the house and land and the power now. Give me, uh, give me love and and wonder all the wonderful things that life could be now. And I think that's what I'm more concerned with. Uh, however, you know, as a divinity a divinity librarian uh, working in a divinity school uh, that's led by Black queer women. I feel like I'm in church all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Every time I go into my office with my coworkers, I feel like I'm in church. And so uh, that's giving me everything that I need. I have uh, wonderful friends, a wonderful family, and our interactions all feel spiritual to me. So my relationship with the church is I know a lot of people in uh, many queer affirming congregations uh, in town, uh, but I do not belong narrowly to any of them.
1: Now, you know, something that's interesting to me is that all three of you have had these very unique paths in really strengthening your faith. You know, it's it's been to the point where you felt like you didn't belong. You were having a, a, a conscience, a, a crisis of conscience, so to speak. And you found this faith through these absolute miracles that have happened for you all. You know... I'm, I'm interested, Laurie. You know, what does that mean to you? And what can church culture gain when it evolves and becomes more inclusive to embrace people who may have paths that are similar to yours?
6: Mm. So, what it means to me is that Unitarian Universalism is a mouthful, but basically, what it means is one and all. And that's what we're about. Everyone is welcome in all our particularity and in our connection with everybody else. We, we believe in a love that is completely universal. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, so I can fit too. I can be this too. And I ended up going to Harvard Divinity School because not only do people my age, you know, these younger generations coming up, we have a hunger for spirituality, but so many of us are queer that we feel like we can't be in religions, but these, religious traditions also have a hunger for us. And there's a beautiful mutual growth that's happening. Don and Stephen were talking about it earlier, and we're just moving right on into the beautiful, love-filled future.
1: It's wonderful. I want to thank all of you for coming onto the show, sharing your journeys, and being here for this episode. Really appreciated. We Our guests were ordained minister Eric Patton. He was joined by Kashif Graham, librarian of religion and theology at Vanderbilt, and interim minister Lori Stevens. Again, thank you all for being here today. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, it's the perfect time to get out for a hike. With plenty of places to go, we'll talk with members of the hiking community about the joy of the trail. This is Nashville, as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, our digital lead is Ana Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. And special thanks to Elizabeth Madera. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I am Khalil Kalona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody and be good to each other.